I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hello, I'm Alison Larkin, writer, comedian, narrator, and host of The Jane Austen Podcast. Join me as we embark on a journey through Austen's timeless stories, starting with Pride and Prejudice. The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Keegan? I'm pretty well. I'm tired. I'm like tired all the time, but otherwise doing great. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So today's topic, we're going to be talking about the Spanish flu uh, of 1918, the flu epidemic. And I realize that this isn't necessarily a quote-unquote feminist issue, so it might be unusual uh, in terms of topics that we usually talk about on this podcast, but given our current circumstances, uh, it is probably a good idea to go back and learn from history of something not quite the same, but probably the closest similar historical event (laughs) to have happened in recent history. Right. There have been many um, epidemics and pandemics throughout history. This is seen as the worst in recorded world history. And I really wanted to learn more about it because especially with all the protests going on right now, that to me really is a feminist issue uh, because it's affecting uh, everything to do with our society. You know, so it's something that needs to be discussed. And very similar things happened back then. And we can learn from the mistakes that these people made. We can learn from the good things that they did. And I feel like if you don't know about this pandemic, uh, this Spanish flu pandemic, that is, it'll help us understand the coronavirus pandemic a little bit better, maybe give us some ease of mind as to why we're doing all of this, what could become if we do not take part in social distancing ordinances and things like that and really learn from past mistakes. Yeah. And I want to tell you, actually, 
Okay, so I watched a documentary. If you download the PBS app, if you have like a Roku or something like that, you can watch um, PBS has a series called American Experience. And they had a documentary that was called Influenza 1918. Uh, 1918 yeah. And um, they interview a lot of people who were alive during that time and their memories, uh, people who lost siblings, parents, um, or who had the flu themselves. Most of these people did come down with the flu themselves. Uh, and, you know, they also interview experts and things like that. It's very similar to something that you would have seen in school growing up that they would have played for you, you know. Right. Uh, but it left me bummed out, of course, because it was, you know, a devastating historical event. But also there is a certain amount of like, wow, I'm glad it's not that bad. I'm glad that what we're living through right now is not nearly as bad as this epidemic. Yeah. Well, because we have to think about the times here. In 1918, they did not have any vaccines for the flu. You got sick, you died, or you waited it out, and you got better. You know, medicine was still very uh, new. There actually wasn't a vaccine for the flu until 1940. So they went through this entire epidemic without having any real um, help or medication. And we'll talk about that a little bit toward the end, a little bit more of some other uh, reasons why people were dying during this time. Um, but yeah, yeah they well, didn't have the medical knowledge that we have today. Yes, I mean, and it, science was really starting to take off. So microbiology was a thing at this point, um, but it was in its infancy. So while we did have vaccines for various other diseases, we just didn't have the ability to even identify a virus. So uh, in that documentary, they talk about the fact that like the microscopes and things that were being used that had been developed at that time were not even capable of seeing a virus because it was too small. So they just didn't have the ability to accurately <laughs> figure out what this problem was. It was oh, a big exactly. part of the issue. Well, yeah, and the the symptoms and everything you know, that we'll get to made it so that people believed that they maybe just had a regular flu. You know, this was something completely new. Um, also, a big reason why it spread so much is that the media was not fully covering what was happening with this disease and it spread because all this was going on toward the end of World War One. So should we kind of get into a little bit about the symptoms and why it was called the Spanish flu? Sure. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So during the first wave, the the people that were affected had the same symptoms as typical flu symptoms, such as chills, fever, and fatigue. It typically went away within several days, and the number of deaths were fairly low. Now, that is not for everywhere and everybody, but typically during the first wave, the symptoms resembled more of that as a regular flu. But during the second wave of this pandemic, the victims died within hours or days of developing symptoms such as their skin turning blue and their lungs filling with fluid, which causes them to suffocate. It's interesting how similar the symptoms are to what's going on right now with COVID-19 as far as like you know, shortness of breath and cough and respiratory things like that. Yes. So just in one year, the average life expectancy in America dropped by a dozen years. It's crazy. So 
in the spring of 1918, which was in March, March 11th, was the first documented case that happened here in the United States. So it's impossible to know exactly where this flu started. A lot of people assume, because it's called the Spanish flu, that it originated in Spain. But actually, the only reason why it's called that is because Spain covered it on the news. During World War I, uh, Spain was a neutral country. It was a neutral party. And so it had free media that covered the outbreak from the start, first reporting on it in Madrid in May of 1918. Meanwhile, allied countries and the central powers had wartime censors who covered up news of the flu to keep morale high during the war. So even though they didn't start reporting on it until May of 1918. It actually, the first reported case in the United States was March 11th, 1918. Um, uh, an army private reported it to his superior in Fort Riley in Kansas, and he was complaining of a sore throat a fever, and a headache. And so, like you said, they didn't take it seriously at first. That sounds like an average flu or possibly a cold. But literally one minute after this army private um, comes in complaining of these symptoms, another soldier shows up complaining of the same symptoms. And by noon, the hospital had 100 cases. Yeah, and within days, 522 men were reported sick in the camp. Yes. It's crazy. Yeah, and that spring, 48 soldiers in Fort Riley died, and the cause of death at the time was listed as pneumonia. But there was a doctor, Dr. Vaughn, um, who had been summoned to go to that camp, and when he got there, there were sick men all over the camp and what he described was seeing like their extremities were blue their faces were blue and it was unlike anything that he'd ever seen before um and then of course because it was world war one we weren't reporting on it like you said um we were continuing to ship men off to europe here in the united states so it quickly began to spread throughout europe europe as yeah. well yeah well so in march of 1918 84,000 American soldiers headed across the Atlantic. And then the next month in April, 118,000 troops followed. So we are shipping so many men to so many different places. And the military really are the ones who are being the most affected by this at first. Um, so it spreads through army camps. It spreads from camp to camp. It kind of spreads like wildfire all throughout Europe. And then after that, there are people who are infected who are coming back on ships. And then it starts to spread throughout the mainland United States. This was kind of touted as a military illness at first. Mm -hmm. A lot of everyday civilians, at least in the United States, again, the documentary that I watched was very um, U.S. focused. It was called American Experience. So it was very U.S. focused. Um, but a lot of American citizens didn't think that this was something that was really going to affect them and their communities. Somehow right. they just believed that it was siloed into the military. It was a military right. illness. Um, and these ships, we should also say, that um, carried soldiers off to Europe, they were packed in there like sardines. Like there was oh, absolutely yeah. no way for them right. to social distance or protect themselves from this illness. Exactly. Well, and then also the soldiers who were, like as soon as they realized that this was a very serious illness, the soldiers that were heavily infected were shipped off to other like makeshift hospitals. And they were, again, packed like sardines into trains and sent off to these 
hospitals where they were literally on top of each other. Like everybody was so crammed in together. And then if you were on the base and you just had like mild symptoms, they allowed you to stay and fight. So neither one of those is a good way of protecting the spread at all. Right. And it doesn't help as well that when they brought it back to the United States, um, that kind of like second go around, the virus had mutated. And so it had become even more deadly. Like you said, it could take somebody out within 12 hours. So when they first started noticing symptoms and again, kind of similar to COVID-19, they could be infectious without displaying symptoms. Um, Mm -hmm. They could be asymptomatic for a period of time. So that by the time they did start displaying symptoms, it could take them within 12 hours. Sometimes it would take longer. You know, it could take weeks even. um, But generally, it would act very, very quickly. Yeah. And the thing is, is that with the war going on, we were also very, very understaffed in the United States, as I'm sure a lot of other countries were as well. There was a shortage of uh, physicians and other healthcare workers to help fight this overwhelming number of sick patients that were coming in. And much like today, they had to turn a lot of schools and churches and other public buildings into makeshift hospitals to try to accommodate everybody. And they were mostly using medical students. Uh, because there really wasn't enough doctors there like within regular communities to help everybody out. Right. Most of the doctors and nurses were working overseas as medics in the war. Yeah. So they were erecting these tents in parks uh, that were acting as kind of like emergency medical tents for people. And the doctors also really didn't know what was going on because while the symptoms were very similar to a regular flu, the lungs were swollen and filled with fluid and turning blue. So when they were doing these autopsies, they were noticing that the lungs were full of fluid and turning blue. And so it's also... It can't be overstated how horrific a death this illness would have been because what happened was your because your lungs were filling with fluid, you were drowning. Yeah, (laughs) you were drowning in your own fluids. Well, what's interesting that I learned about was that besides soldiers being affected, when the rest of the community started getting affected, it was mostly young adults, which is really bizarre because typically uh, it's, you know, newborn babies and elderly people who have weaker immune systems and are unable to fight these diseases and these viruses. So I learned about something. I did a little science project on cytokine storms. So I'm here to tell you all about them. So a cytokine storm occurs when your body has an elevated immune response. So when a healthy body is fighting infection, a natural immune system response occurs. Part of this response involves cytokines, which sends signals to the immune system so it can do its job. However, cytokines are only helpful in moderation. When a pathway is engaged too much, the immune system can actually cause damage to the body. A cytokine storm refers to when an excessive amount of cytokines are released, which causes inflammation in the area of the body being flooded. If it causes enough inflammation, it is fatal. So a lot of people were seeing this inflammation in their lungs. And the reason why all of these young people were dying is because our immune systems were fighting it off too much, which was then killing us. And it was mostly people between the ages of 20 and 40. 
and 99% of pandemic influenza deaths in the United States occurred to those under the age of 65. Researchers did uncover um, a frozen body of one of the victims, and they trans-infected animals with it, which I hope this was a really long time ago that they did that, but they wanted to see what the effects were um, on the animals, and it did show that they died as a response of a cytokine storm. So it was showing that all of these people were dying because their immune systems were fighting it off too much. And also some of the older people were more immune to it because of the Russian flu that had happened in 1889 to 1890 or so they think. Yeah, I mean, I would like to hear more about that because to my understanding, even when there are two different types of flus, and I could be wrong, the strains were different. So the immunities would have been different. So it it seems strange to me that their immune systems would have fought this off better um, because it's a different strain of flu. But Dr. Vaughn, um, who's that doctor that I mentioned before, he even limited the ages even further by saying that people who were ages 21 to 29 were the most susceptible, which made it even worse. The timing could not have been worse because 21 to 29, I mean, those are prime military ages. So uh, there were lots of young, young men um, who were not only in close proximity with no ability to social distance in any way, um, but they were also the prime age for this to be fatal. Um, Yeah. And the other the other group that was mostly affected was pregnant women. And this is really sad. Uh, Pregnant women were most likely to die if they were infected out of anybody else. The death rate was 23 to 71 percent in pregnant women. And of the pregnant women that survived their childbirth, 26 percent lost their child. Yeah. So it's it's, awful. Yeah. It's just it's it's devastation. And I I feel like. You know, there's always that idea where the older generation would rather have would rather have them die than the younger generation. They wanted to carry on. And yet we're watching this younger generation die and we're watching these babies coming into the world dying. It must have been a really scary time. Yeah, it's very interesting, though, in that documentary, you know, because they're interviewing a lot of older people and this documentary was probably filmed a while ago. Um, But they're interviewing a lot of old people who got this disease when they were children and all of them managed to pull out of it but they do interview one old man who had gotten it whenever he was like 11 or so and his mother who was pregnant did pass away and they also interviewed a um, woman an old woman whose little brother who was maybe like 18 months or something um, passed away so uh, you know it did happen in very very small children but it does seem as though young children were more able to recover. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So they did finally identify the disease as a form of influenza, but it was a completely different form of influenza than they had ever seen before, as we said. And it had mutated. So they had done some work to try and figure out what this disease was, how they could come up with some kind of vaccine. Uh, but the disease had had mutated quickly. So uh, let's talk a little bit about what the flu is. Um, what the average flu is, we have, uh, you know, experience with that. Every year we get flu shots um, for a reason. There's a flu season. And, you know, I've heard a lot of medical professionals talking about how people don't take the flu seriously enough because the flu does cause deaths. Uh, Every year it causes deaths and hospitalizations. But 
This flu, like we said, ravaged things far more quickly. So let's talk about what the flu is. Influenza is a virus that attacks the respiratory system. The flu virus is highly contagious. When an infected person coughs, sneezes, or talks, respiratory droplets are generated and transmitted into the air and can then be inhaled by anyone nearby. Additionally, a person who touches something with the virus on it and then touches his or her mouth, eyes, or nose can become infected. So this disease, similar to the coronavirus, was airborne in the form of those droplets that happen if you cough, sneeze, or talk. Uh, And so there was just no avoiding it. So it began to spread among the civilian population and was first noticed in the United States in Boston and then quickly moved to New York, Philadelphia, and beyond before slowly starting to spread its way west. Yeah, and it's interesting the ways that they, the ways that different states and different communities handled this situation um, because obviously this was kind of unprecedented. They needed to kind of improvise ways of keeping their communities safe. And some communities imposed quarantines and ordered citizens to wear masks and shut down public places such as schools, churches, and theaters. Uh, People were asked to avoid shaking hands with one another and stay indoors. A no spitting ordinance was enforced, a rule taken very seriously by the Boy Scouts in New York City. Uh, They would approach people they'd seen spitting in the street and give them cards that read, you are in violation of the sanitary code, which we probably need right now, too. You're in violation by not wearing a mask. Absolutely. But I I will say that even though people did start to take things more seriously as time went on, I do want to point out that very similarly to the way that we saw some authorities and officials handle the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak, especially here in the United States, there were also many, many officials who downplayed the seriousness of the Spanish flu epidemic in the beginning as it in part as a way to try and keep people calm and focused on the war effort. They didn't want a lot of distractions and they didn't want people to stop going to work, especially in factories that were building um, things that were used in the war, that were contributing to the war effort. Exactly. It was more common in Western states to have mask ordinances and um, what we now would call stay-at-home orders, basically, and social distancing guidelines. Um, So that was mostly in Western states. And some people, a lot of people, in fact, saw wearing a mask as being very patriotic because, like we said, this was seen as like a military virus. So Americans felt that they were being patriotic by wearing a mask to keep our troops safe from infection. But I I do want to say that I feel like that stuff happened later. In the beginning of the outbreak, I think it was very common for health officials and also like state officials they knew there was nothing they could do about this yeah and so they didn't want to panic their citizens by asking them to wear masks um or anything like that until further along when there were already many many deaths so royal copeland was the health commissioner of new york and he actually announced even after there had been quite a few deaths in new york He said the city was in no danger of an epidemic and there was no need for people to worry, which as we've seen with this COVID-19 outbreak, if you do that, because we saw in the United States, we saw our president doing that, downplaying the seriousness of this, it caused the spread to to I mean, it caused everything to spread far, far more rapidly. And the way 
that they talked about it in this documentary was very interesting to have a war going on, the biggest war the world had ever seen, World War One, um, and this epidemic happening at the same time. It was just a recipe for disaster. And the way they said it was they said the war demanded that everything speed up and the, the illness demanded that everything slowed down. And right. so... In the end, and what we'll see as a recurring theme, especially in the United States, I can't speak to the rest of the country or the rest of the world, but in the United States, what we saw was them time and again choosing the war effort over the lives of the civilians in our country. Now, that did change as time went on, like you were saying, um, if we want to talk about the masks and stuff like that. Yeah, I think that the farther into 1918 that we got and the more it was kind of unavoidable for the media to completely avoid it. Although, like we said, because it was war times, everything was being very censored and morale was meant to be staying high. Eventually, a lot of these big health organizations started to take things more seriously and urge people to wear more masks. There was actually a Red Cross PSA that read, the man or woman or child who will not wear a mask now is a dangerous slacker, which should come back, right? Yes. I think that should come back. Agreed. Um, And then especially when the war ended, many didn't really see enough reason to keep their masks on. It was kind of like, okay, well, the war is over. The troops are back. Let's just kind of go back to normal. You know, it's something that's a little bit different from the Spanish flu or the influence of 1918, as I should actually be calling it, uh, to the current COVID-19 outbreak is that I think a lot of civilians noticed that the masks weren't really doing very much because the masks were gauzy and porous. and Or they were just not wearing them correctly, too. Yeah, there was a lot of like, yeah, not wearing them correctly at all. But even then, the masks that even the medical professionals wore, because of what they were made out of, it wasn't like medical grade PPE that we see now. Right. Um, it was a very gauzy, thin material. So... It, it was very likely that if you were close enough to somebody who was infected, um, you could become infected as well, even while wearing a mask. There was actually a city in Utah who, you know, they'd heard about this epidemic happening on the east, uh, in the east, and they were like, okay, we're going to quarantine the city. We're going to put signs outside that say, like, this city is quarantined. It was like a little western town. It's yeah. quarantined. We're not accepting people to come in from the outside in hopes that it would keep them protected. But unfortunately, they still had mail delivered and so the mailman ended up bringing it into the town and ravaging the entire town because you can't not breathe that's what makes it difficult about a respiratory illness you still have to breathe so there's always a likelihood that you'll get it and that's the thing is that our economy was really hurt during this time because a lot of mail delivery and garbage, like different sanitation workers, uh, were not able to work. So especially if you were living in a small town, you would have no garbage pickup or no mail if your mail person or mail people were sick. So that was a big hit to our economy. I want to get into talking about the Anti-Mask League a little bit. This to me was... Uh, very telling to what's going on today. So it was formed in San Francisco in retaliation to having to wear masks. Now, San Francisco, to give you a little bit of background, was not a city that took the strictest... What's the word I'm looking for? Not ordinances. I I know what you're saying, though. and Precautions? Yes, precautions. And I would say that if we want to, again you know, compare and contrast between this influenza outbreak in 1918 and the COVID-19 outbreak that's happening right now, I would compare the East Coast, or I'm sorry, the West Coast to 
I think they had a very similar mentality as the people who are in the Midwest of this country right now because it wasn't hitting their area as hard. They didn't see the big deal. Whereas like somewhere like Philadelphia, where they were having thousands of deaths per day, you know, where they, they talked about in this documentary, this woman from Philadelphia was saying that they used to recommend that they have big wooden boxes, essentially caskets, on your front porch and then when somebody in your house died you would put the body in the casket on your front porch and then every day the death cart would go through the city and pick up your dead essentially like it was like the black plague so people on the east coast were taking this very seriously because everyone was dying full families were being taken out but the west coast kind of had a different mentality because they're like, well, it's not hitting us as hard. And it's the exactly. same kind of thing I see from people in the Midwest who are like, well, our hospitals aren't being overwhelmed. Our hospitals are ghost towns. So I think we can ease on restrictions, <laughs> you know? Exactly, exactly. They were doing so the same thing. That's a perfect representation of what this is like. So now you have a little bit of an image of what was going on in San Francisco. So they were just really, really slow, basically, at the onset of this. They didn't take the proper precautions to prepare the communities. Uh, So people started getting sick. But like Keegan said, not a whole lot. So the city's Board of Health finally recommended further precautions, such as avoiding large crowds and practicing good hygiene. Dance halls were closed and ventilation was added to the streetcars. But other than that, life in San Francisco kind of went on as usual. There was no real like what we would call stay at home orders and things like that. They just said avoid large crowds. You know, you can't meet at the theaters and things like that. Schools did eventually close and eventually masks were made mandatory. The San Francisco Chronicle wrote, it will soon be impolite to acknowledge an introduction without a mask. So polite in 1918. So polite. Well, I mean, that's an argument people make now. It's like common courtesy. Even if you feel like you don't need to wear one, it's social common courtesy. It's polite to do that for the for the other citizens that live around you 100 percent. so even though it was you know suggested that they wear masks many refused to wear masks and those who did wear them wore them incorrectly and soon the city abandoned their masks entirely uh police started i mean they were poking holes in them to like oh yeah oh (laughs) yeah smoke out of (laughs) yeah it's there was nothing real going on with those masks it was completely fake so eventually they're like fuck it like if we're not even going to take this seriously we're just going to take the masks off so police started arresting people and violators would face either a fine from five to ten dollars or a short stay in county jail that's about it and then you were off and you can do whatever you wanted on your merry way so by november less people were getting infected so the board of health lifted their closure orders and life went completely back to normal right away there was no stages there was no anything they were like it's done celebrate everybody out to the streets now by december the city was infected again and citizens were told to put their masks back on hoping that that would be enough to stop the spread but still 90 percent of san franciscans refused to wear their masks so on January 25th, 1919, nearly 2,000 people in San Francisco showed up at Dreamland Rink for a public meeting. They were tired of wearing their masks in public. So the Anti-Mask League was formed, and they did do some demonstrations and protests, and it doesn't seem like it was ever like a huge, huge thing. Like I don't think it really made it out of San Francisco, but um, still, this was a, a large population of people that were retaliating against Uh, medical professionals and they kind of reaped the 
you know, the negatives of that. Physicians reported 600 new cases on January 10th, 1919 alone. Imagine being so wrong and yet so loud. Right? Exactly. Really. Which is what imagine. we're seeing now. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the same thing. It's just like history, whoever created the Anti-Mask League, history does not look kindly upon you. You look it like a not. fucking idiot. You do. You know? And the th- and the thing is, is that cities that implemented and maintained strict closure orders early suffered significantly lower death rates, even in small towns. Even if you are somewhere where you feel like there's no possible way that you can get infected, you need to be safe. I am seeing less and less masks. I'm seeing people get closer and closer together. There have been parties in my yard every day since Wednesday of people getting together, dropping their kids off and playing. It's unbelievable to me. And we live in Los Angeles. People are anticipating. I mean, LA still surprisingly has not extended the stay at home order. I really thought they would. So things are going to start opening on the 15th. And I think people are getting antsy to start doing stuff again. And so they're just, they're just doing it, you know, um, which everybody who's like, the government can't tell me what to do. It's like, clearly the government has to tell you what to do because if they don't, you guys won't use common sense and just avoid being with each other. So by contrast on the East coast in Washington, DC, they were closing schools. They closed all schools, all public gatherings were banned. Um, and people kept dying on the East coast. And so at this point they're trying to find a cure. They're trying to find a vaccine. Doctors are trying to figure out, um, how to stop this illness and the spread of this illness. They were doing things. It was bananas watching this documentary. They were talking about how, the doctors were so tired and burnt out that they were telling family members like one one doctor told a 12-year-old boy who had it to essentially like prepare to die. They were putting toe tags on bodies as like living bodies as they came into the hospital essentially just to save on time because they oh were like God. we know we know that they're going to die and they in these tents all the beds would be full and there would also be people on the floor waiting for the person in the bed to die so that they could take their bed. So uh, doctors were fighting really hard to try and find a cure. And they thought that they had one at first and they were really excited uh, and they went and they were starting to inoculate people. But unfortunately, they had identified the disease or the cause of the disease as a bacteria. And so they created a vaccine using a bacteria. But unfortunately, the disease was not caused by a bacteria. It was caused by a virus. So the vaccines did nothing. And like I said earlier, science knew almost nothing about viruses at this time. So people became super desperate to try and find a cure. And in a lot of communities, home remedies, folk remedies started to take off. And of course, this opened the door for a lot of um, snake oil salesmen to step in. They saw an opportunity where people were so desperate for medicine that would protect them that people started making medicine, in quotes, and selling it to people. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is that doctors would be prescribing just pain relievers to patients to basically just relieve the pain of their symptoms so they could be comfortable because there was nothing that could prevent it from stopping. Right. You kind of just had to let the flu like work its course and it's like either you're gonna fight it off and live or you won't like that was basically it so aspirin was super popular now the original patent that aspirin had was expired in 1917 which meant that anybody 
could any any companies could make aspirin now basically so because of the need for these pain relievers everybody started making just tons of aspirin and some medical professionals even recommended taking up to 30 grams a day which is a dose now known to be toxic and for reference the consensus today says that doses over four grams are unsafe these people were taking up to 30 grams a day for their pain so people were dying because of aspirin poisoning but they were dying of aspirin poisoning because they had this influenza so it said that October of 1918 was the largest, was the month with the largest amount of deaths. But yes. now, you know, as time has gone on, they've done some research and they've seen that a lot of these people, their actual cause of death was aspirin poisoning. So that also, you know, these home remedies and aspirin took into account the number of deaths as well. Right. I mean, yes, yes. I mean, you can still attribute those deaths, in my opinion, to influenza because they wouldn't have been taking taking these things if they hadn't had this illness in the first place. But yeah, in one week in October, the death rate in Philadelphia was 700 times higher than the normal average for the rest of the country. And if we're going to start looking at what was normal, um, New York had 800 deaths in one day in October. And Mm -hmm. Philly had 700 times higher than that. 11,000 people died in in Philadelphia that October. Just in that city alone, 11,000 people. And previously, we were looking at, um, for reference, in September, so the month before, 12,000 people, so only 1,000 more, had died in all of the United States. Wow. So it really started to hit Philadelphia hard. It's also important to point out, just as with COVID-19, it hit marginalized and minority communities especially hard as well, especially Native American communities. Um, Also, they described that as one tribe in Utah when they went to go, like, check on the tribe, uh, they saw that it was just completely, completely ravaged. And part of the reason for that, not only were they not receiving enough um, medical attention, really any medical attention from the government, uh, but also their rituals for this particular tribe for when someone died required them all to get together. So it just spread like wildfire throughout that community. Oh my gosh. So Woodrow Wilson at this point around October, he had to decide whether or not to send soldiers to Europe, more soldiers. So Mm -hmm. 70,000 American soldiers had gotten sick and some units had upwards of 85 deaths in their unit. So, of course, they're writing and they're saying, we need more soldiers because our soldiers are dying or they're sick and they can't fight and we need somebody to go fight this war. And Mm -hmm. so Woodrow Wilson had to decide, do I send over more soldiers on cruise ships where they're inevitably going to get sick because they're packed in there like sardines, or do I keep them home and try and keep them safe? And in the end... The army needed more troops, so Woodrow Wilson sent them more troops, knowing full well that a good portion of them would get sick or die. Yeah, uh, it was just the choice that was made. It was the, the choice. I mean, and I understand. I appreciate that. I understand. He, he's a wartime president who felt that he was in a difficult situation. Of course, but 
unfortunately, you know, especially if you look into, we won't talk about that today, but if you look into like what kind of precipitated World War One um, and how unnecessary this war was in the mm-hmm. first place, the fact that we are sacrificing our young people to this <laughs> war yeah. um, and also and the exposing sickness. them to this illness yeah. is really upsetting, you yeah. know. Um, so in that October... In 31 days of that October, the flu killed 195,000 Americans. It was the deadliest month in American history. And guards were actually being hired to protect caskets from being stolen because they were so rare at this point. Um, There was actually one quote where as the disease was headed west, a official on the East Coast wrote to someone on the West Coast and and told him, have your woodworkers start making caskets now. Have your laborers start wow. digging graves now um, because it's headed your way, you know. And I, I loved this part. I kept, when I was like watching this documentary and reading my notes and things like that or these articles that we were reading, I kept trying to find things that I thought were parallels with today. Yeah. And um, this is something that somebody said that I was like, that is perfect. He said, social cohesiveness will break down because the source of the danger is other human beings. Eventually, morality will break down in society and violence began to break out across America. And we, we, we're seeing that again, where people yeah. are becoming violent. And part of that is this fear of other human beings because like yeah. they're the source of of the illness mm-hmm. and in san francisco like you were saying um where there was a lot of opposition to wearing masks a health department inspector actually shot a man for refusing to wear a mask and ended up shooting two bystanders as, as well oh my um, god y- yes That's and it's like <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, there's absolutely horrific stories. There there was one um, where a man killed his whole family, including himself. And he was saying, basically saying, like, before they can get sick and the disease can take them, I'm going to take them myself. So there was a a huge uptick in violence, um, whether to do with being told to stay at home, being told to wear masks or just fear of the illness itself that happened um, towards the end of 2018. 2018? Oh, sorry. Whoops. Um, 1918. <laughs> nope. Yeah. Um, to me, from what I've read with the ending of this, it kind of seems like either you just had a good enough immune system to fight it or you died. And that's just how it stopped. You right. either and built then it up trickled an immunity out. or you mm-hmm. died. And that was it. Because I was like, how yes. did this end? That's yeah. It. I, I mean, there is no good. Even in the documentary I watched, it was like there wasn't a good ending it it was just kind of like by november things started to slow down and deaths started to de- decrease and the reason yeah. for that was just because if y- everybody who was gonna get it pretty much had already gotten it and they'd either died or they had developed the antibodies to protect them from the virus so by november 11th the war ended and people took to the streets to celebrate so there were tens of thousands of people gathered in the streets and while this did cause a small uptick uh in there was like a small fourth wave right 
Yeah, like a very small wave of of people who got sick after that. I'm guessing it was basically everyone who hadn't been sick yet um, got sick after that because they gathered too soon. Um, And it did cause a a slight uptick. But by that point, the virus had mostly slowed down. Mm -hmm. Um, But, I mean, it had done a a massive amount of damage. The epidemic killed between 600 and 675,000 people in 10 months in the United States and approximately 30 to 50 million throughout the world. That's crazy. Yeah, they say that the influenza killed more people in a single year than the Black Plague, which lasted four years. And then I didn't write this in these notes, but I remember hearing um, a statistic saying that uh, it also killed more people in one year than HIV AIDS did in four years. It was something like, or in 24 years, it was something crazy like that. Like this disease infected so many people so fast because of the way that it's transmitted, much like the coronavirus today. So this isn't something like HIV AIDS where you can, you know, practice safe sex and make sure that you're cleaning your hypodermic needles and things like that. This was something that was affecting absolutely everybody. So the death count was so high. Yeah, they had no way to stop it is really the problem. So it killed more Americans than all the wars in the 20th century combined. That's how many Americans it killed. And I do think that this should be a warning to people like people who are like reopen, reopen, reopen right now. If you want to do that before we have a vaccine, just know that there is going to be an uptick of cases just because we haven't seen as many deaths as maybe you were expecting us to have seen um, up to this point with COVID-19. If we reopen without a vaccine, it will be very not very similar because the influenza of 1918 was just a more rapid spreading, more deadly disease. Right. However, if we open without a vaccine, it will be similar in terms of the number of people who contract the illness because we have we have nothing to com- yeah. combat it. That's yeah, why exactly. people want to wait to start allowing big groups to gather until there is some form of a vaccine. Because I've exactly. seen a lot of people who are arguing to reopen say, well, we just need to reopen and it, people who die are going to die and that's what we need to do for people to, um, for people to develop an immunity to this. Yeah, it's so fucked we- up. Right, right. I mean, and that is what happened. Eventually, it will fizzle out. We will speed up the progress of the virus if we reopen everything. And that's their argument. But people are going to die if we do that. That's just how it is. Yep. And I loved this quote from, I think it was a History.com article where they said, today we can look back and see that they flattened the curve and the communities that did enforce much stricter regulations uh, and for a longer period of time and began earlier had lower death rates. But they didn't have the data tabulated yet. So I think in the aftermath, it wasn't as clear that what they had done had been effective. So they didn't realize, you know, they just didn't have any way of like realizing it. But those measures that they put into place that we are now putting into place for the coronavirus mm-hmm. were effective yep. to as a to you know as much a degree as they could be given the circumstances exactly exactly so again if we can learn anything from this story it's that we need to not just rely on what our mayors and governors are telling us but also rely on what our instincts are telling us if there is no vaccine there is no way to stop the spread of this and especially in smaller towns that are reopening I feel like it's especially important for them to know the history of what's happened when places have reopened too soon and you know just practice 
you know, listening to your conscience. You know what I mean? Like, right. Do, I, I think do what feels right to you. I'm, I'm happy that we did this episode today because I do think it's important. One of the last lines in the PBS documentary was as soon as the dying stopped, the forgetting began. Yeah. And it's something that like, this was devastating. This took out whole families, whole communities, and it wasn't something that was more than maybe a paragraph or a page in my high school history book. And that is crazy. This should have been taught far more thoroughly. And I think it was such a traumatizing, collective traumatizing experience for people that they didn't want to talk about it after it was done. But if we had really emphasized the horror of this virus, I think that people's mentalities around our current pandemic would have been much different. Exactly. I think if more people knew the stories of our past pandemics and epidemics that have happened throughout the world, that we would have a better guideline for what to do. And luckily, we have a lot of great health organizations throughout the world who do know the history and are doing their best to ensure that we are following um, the footsteps of what's worked before. But unfortunately, we also have a government and an administration right now who is trying very hard to work against that, which makes it incredibly difficult. So, Right. And, and not just that, but we also have this anti-facts kind of society conspiracy at this theory everyone's yes. got a tinfoil hat on yeah right yeah there is no agreed upon truth for a lot a large segment of our population who are going to continue to decide that this is some kind of grand conspiracy instead of an actual medical emergency yeah um and that is dangerous and that's what i keep trying to say to people who are just like well it's just a difference of opinion and i'm like no if you share dangerous misinformation about this disease on your social media you're sharing that stupid fucking pandemic video or like whatever you're doing you are you have blood on your hands period because you uh, that false sense of of security that you're giving people because they're scared is going to get people sick and killed like that's yeah, what's protecting going to protecting the world during world war one didn't help <laughs> you know it didn't help to shield the eyes of what was happening all around the world it just made everything worse yes absolutely all right well thanks so much for listening everybody i hope that you guys found this as interesting as we did i really enjoyed reading this story and learning more about it um we've been getting more and more uh, recommendations for episodes from you guys and we really love it so keep that coming you can email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us at on instagram at angry neighborhood feminist we also have a facebook group and business page you can rate and review us on the business page and chat with your fellow listeners on the group page we also have a twitter that we sometimes use at yamp podcast y a n f podcast <laughs> let's see uh you can also rate and review us on apple Podcasts. we love it so so much you will be featured on reviews day tuesday when you post and if you don't already listen to us on radio public it's a free way for you to listen and it helps us out just a little bit All right. Awesome. That's everything we have for you today. With all of that being said, we encourage you to to raise on. Bye. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.